0: So tonight's Dharma talk is on the Noble Eightfold Path. And for those of you that weren't here last week, this is a continuation of last week's talk. The Eightfold Path is really the fourth noble truth that the Buddha talked about. It's really the path of freedom that includes a body of guidelines of reflections, of ways of being that covers all aspects of our life. And it's really, for me, a lot of what most drew me to this path. Because in contrast to any sort of a practice that says this is spiritual and then we go off and live the rest of our lives, this is the most powerful flag that says, hey, there's nothing exempt. It's all part of waking up. So the Buddha, in quite a wise and comprehensive way, outlined this path of waking up that includes everything, um, which makes this a very long talk tonight. <laughs> the Buddha said, "I teach one thing and one thing only: that suffering and freedom from suffering. Our suffering is we forget. We forget who we really are. We forget." what really matters we forget to be true to our own hearts we forget to really look at each other really listen we forget that's our suffering we forget each day all of us we all get carried away at some point or other and usually quite continuously in this stream of planning and worrying in trying to control the day and make certain things happen we get carried in our wanting and our fearing and it's very much a part of the culture we're in a culture that presses forward and has these goals and these standards that really squeeze us and keep us hopping i love this uh this is a written by a high school student this is his application to college and the question was tell us about anything significant in your life Dear friends in the admissions department, how can I describe myself? I am a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees. At times, I have written award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. I can tread water for three days in a row. I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone playing. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. I'm an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon from a horde of ferocious (laughs) ants. I play bluegrass cello and was scouted by the Mets. When I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my backyard and enjoy urban (laughs) hand-gliding. On Wednesdays after school, I repair electric appliances free of charge. I am an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. (laughs) I bet 400 children trust me. I once once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day, and still had time to refurbish the entire dining room. (laughs) I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket, and I have performed covert operations for the CIA. (laughs) I sleep, but only infrequently and usually in a chair. The laws of physics do not apply to me. I've made extraordinary four-course meals using only a toaster oven. <laughs> I have won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. <laughs> I've played Hamlet. I've performed open heart surgery, and I've spoken with Elvis. But I've not gone to college. Please, consider accepting me. <laughs> so we come from that kind of society where really it's valued to be everything be perfect and we know it inside us as much as we logically say you know accept who we are we all have these kind of wired in standards and we're always measuring how close we come and they're always beyond us so these norms of our culture, these ways we are trained, can disconnect us from being okay in who we are and from really living to what we find precious or sacred. Lily Tomlin writes, sometimes I worry about being a success in a mediocre world. (laughs) You understand. So. Forgetting, being caught in wanting, being caught in fearing, it ends up so that we violate our own nature when we forget, when we're lost. We don't really listen to what's going on inside us. We don't take care of ourselves well and we judge ourselves a lot. And similarly, when we're caught in the grip of wanting and fearing we are not able to be sensitive to those around us, and it leads to violating those around us. It's very easy to be cruel when we're not connected to our hearts, to not see, to act in a hurtful way. And we certainly see it in the world, and in societies and cultures that forget, which is most of them. It leads to mass scales of violence, of hurting this earth, depleting her resources hurting each other so we see it when we forget there's suffering there's harm when we remember there's healing there's compassion there's wisdom on this last Sunday I got to see both in kind of full display because I went to the Holocaust Museum and I hadn't gone yet so, or I had gone actually to the children's section with my son so it was as those of you that have been there and as most everyone can imagine um, seeing what is as horrible as anything in the universe how humans when they're disconnected and acting out of fear and hatred can create such enormous unfathomable suffering but there was also this exact other side where all these people that came and they were people from all walks of life. I was just ah uh, it's really something we're walking through in these faces that were so soft and sad and right there and will the courage to bear witness, you know, when we're willing to really look in the face of suffering, it naturally opens our hearts. So there's this this beauty that humans have to face suffering and open and feel our hearts and then this incredible incredible painful side of being when we disconnect and lash out so that was Sunday I spent the day at the Holocaust Museum and then last night I went to see the movie Titanic to kind of lift my spirits a little you know (laughs) so our path to remember and our conditioning to forget it's been said that spiritual life is very much like a garden that it's our nature to bloom you know it's our nature to wake up and it's something that we cultivate and it's natural to cultivate to want to be the gardener and the garden we're both so the eightfold path charts pretty much the ways that we can cultivate the qualities of wakefulness and heart, which are really our nature. And the first of the Eightfold Path is wise understanding. And I think it's so beautiful that the Buddha began the whole thing with wise understanding, that we arrive, we even step, take a step on the path because there's some place in us, intrinsically, that knows. Some place in us that knows that... Awakenings happening, it's just happening. We can look at our lives and look at our awareness and know that there is this kind of natural blooming going on that we are getting kinder and we're seeing more. And the more we long for awakening, the more it happens. The more it happens, the more we get intentional. So this is wise understanding. The root is the seeing that we're waking up and seeing the suffering that happens when we're asleep wise understanding is seeing that everything's changing and there's nothing we can hold on to that when we try to hold on we suffer because by nature things keep changing we get as one student put it rope burn holding on to the moving rope we suffer when we try to hold on that when we resist how life is, we suffer. We resist by, in some way, posing that life is wrong. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with how it is. We resist. When we do that, we create suffering. We create suffering when we struggle against our mortality, how it all is. This probably is the most deep way that we all keep ourselves contracted tied up in knots that in some way we anticipate and are afraid of the fact that these forms come and they go Woody Allen writes some people want to achieve immortality through their work or their descendants I intend to achieve immortality by not dying so we organize our life to avoid this vulnerable feeling that we're going to die, that we're not complete, that we're not okay. We organize around that. And in that organizing, we live a lot in the mentality that's either worrying or planning because something can go wrong. Now, it's been described by the Buddha, and we talked about this last week some, that this conditioning to try to hold on so tight to these transient experiences this conditioning to resist arises out of a sense that we're separate that we're a separate self that we don't really belong to the whole and that we need to defend ourselves and we need to expand and enrich ourselves in order to be okay we have to keep doing something Albert Einstein described it as an optical delusion of consciousness that things were separate. So one thing that I find very useful to to reflect on is that that's natural. That it's not like um, the Buddhist shaking his hand saying, you dummy, you thought you were separate and you're not. It's actually natural that we're supposed to emerge and think that. It's part of our evolution. It's part of the way we organize and develop coping strategies and move through life. And it's natural and part of our evolution to begin to see beyond that, to begin to see our inherent connectedness, our belonging. It's been described as that we think we're this separate wave on the face of the ocean, on the face of the sea. And in fact, we belong to the ocean, we are the ocean, we're made of water. These waves are just arising expressions of the divine. So at one minute, the perennial philosophy is the heart of wise understanding, this recognition of our true nature, who we really are, our natural radiant awareness and wisdom and goodness and seeing also that it's our conditioning to forget. Wise understanding. Now, that's the first of the Eightfold. The second is wise attitude and wise intention, and they're kind of lumped together. And we can see why when we look a little closer, that out of this understanding, when we begin to really see the truth that we're waking up and what causes suffering there comes a natural aspiration to align ourselves with this awakening, to really flower fully. We really want to do that as we feel it happening. So wise aspiration is this intention to wake up. The way we can look at it, one way to kind of discriminate between skillful and unskillful intention or attitude is... Do our thoughts, do our intentions incline us towards freedom, towards feeling more of the boundlessness and the openness of our being? Or do they make us tight, contracted, small? Now most of us spend pretty much time operating off of unskillful intentions. We spend a lot of our day as I mentioned, out of fear and out of wanting, trying to in some way feed ourselves or protect ourselves, defend ourselves. And that's, again, it's not a problem, it's really how it happens with our conditioning. Our challenge is to look, to just begin to see that. It's said in India that when a pickpocket sees a saint, he sees the saint's pockets. And this is how it is, this is how our life feels small. That when our intention is in some way to acquire to get something, to get recognition to get through the day that becomes the filter and we miss out on the preciousness of moments we miss out on any real intimacy with our own being and the beings around us we can't commune We know that. I mean, how often have we spent time with another person and had some agenda or something we're trying to get from that person or prove to that person, protect ourselves from regarding that person. We usually have something because we're vulnerable and we're scared of each other. But these agendas stop us from being there, stop us from realizing a deeper aspiration, which is also in all of us, which is to love and to connect now what keeps us trapped in these more fear-based intentions and attitudes are the habitual thoughts that we're conditioned to live inside of which is why a central part of practice that really frees us up is mindfulness of thinking to begin again and again to just note oh thinking thinking and look at the thoughts Are these thoughts that in some way inspire, that point to freedom, that remind us of what really matters to us, are? Do they reinforce a sense of being small or separate? Do they reinforce the beliefs that something's about to go wrong or something's wrong with me? We all know what it's like to have these minds, these kind of like out-of-control TV sets just going from station to station to station. and a lot of the stations are broadcasting news that really says not nice things about ourselves and other people i know for myself part of my kind of regular inner training is when i start feeling crummy meaning small shallow dissatisfied to really ask what is it i'm believing in right now generally i'll find that i'm believing that i blew it in some way recently like I didn't measure up. Usually I'm carrying some deficiency feeling. That's the cause of the largest percentage of feeling bad. What do we believe in? The only way to open out of and not be slave to the conditioned thoughts that cause pain is to begin to be mindful of them. To practice noticing thinking. It's very, very powerful take a moment if you will and just close your eyes you don't have to sit up or do anything different than you're doing but just find your breath just listen within yourself and now mentally start repeating the word trouble trouble just repeat it and notice what happens You can bring some drama to it if you'd like to really explore this one then erase the blackboard, take a few deep breaths, and now the word kindness, just repeat kindness a few times, pay attention, kindness. thoughts just plucked out of thin air and yet you can open your eyes if you'd like as some of you might have noticed our whole body can get affected there's a real power to repeated thoughts to affect our entire system so this mindfulness of thinking can begin to notice that that's happening and what's so profound is that in the moment of noticing that we're thinking, if we really are aware, we're no longer in the grip. We're not believing so much the thought. It's possible to see what are thoughts made of. They're images, they're representations. They're not what's real. They're a description of what's real. We have some choice. Do I want to believe this? It's the doorway to freedom to begin to open out of these thoughts that keep us stressed and keep us small. So right attitude is that environment of mind that's conducive to waking up. It's the intention and aspiration to be free that we stay connected with. So the Buddha started with right understanding or wise understanding, seeing what's true, out of that having the intention and attitude that's conducive to awakening the third of the eightfold path is mindful speech now these next three which are mindful speech mindful action and wise livelihood have to do with being in the world it covers everything so mindful speech now especially for our culture because we speak so much, we use so many words, it becomes a really radical practice to begin to pay attention. If we're feeling insufficient inside, if we're feeling small or separate, our language will carry that. (coughs) The purpose of communicating is understanding communicating is as deep a spiritual practice as any our language the mood the tone carries that are not now the buddha gave two guidelines for wise and mindful speech one is speak what's true the other to speak what is helpful what's true and what's helpful And if you reflect on this, imagine moving through the day and saying what's true and what's helpful, it's really hard. It's hard for a number of reasons. First, it takes a lot of wisdom to see what's true and to see what's helpful. A lot of times we'll, in honor of trying to speak truth, really hurt people. And we all have so many different experiences going on in us. To report out the truth of any one experience isn't necessarily wise. There's lots that we can just say, okay, let that pass by. So to speak what's true when it's helpful takes wisdom. For others, the challenge is that out of wanting to be kind, maybe not being so straightforward. We certainly see this in codependent families where somebody's suffering from an addiction and we all have addictions and we tiptoe around each other and sometimes the most greatest gift we can give is confronting with kindness the truth. So to speak what's true to speak what's kind Mother Teresa describes it that kind words are easy to speak and their ripples are truly endless There's a huge power to our words to hurt, to heal. I mean, each of us know it. You can reflect in your life in the last probably even few days or weeks how much power when somebody said something that was kind or caring to soothe, to uplift. And then the other side, how painful it can be when somebody speaks in a harsh way. So how do we do this? How do we Pay attention mindfully to our speech. One thing that helps me a lot is to pause. And this is... I'm still working on it, it's taken years because there's so much of an impulse to plunge in and just to speak. Just to pause, even for a moment, to regroup, to to come back again, to stay in our body. You know, um, in a number of traditions... Mindful speech is really an act of training. It's a ritual. Um, there's a process called the Way of Counsel that's uh, part of indigenous Native American teachings and it's also in the Buddhist and many other cultures. And there's some basic principles that really are quite beautiful. Um, the first is to speak from your heart, to really speak from your heart. The second, to listen from your heart, to not plan what you're going to say so much. You know how we all do that. To speak from the heart, to listen from the heart. To have a sense of of the needs and ecology of all the beings involved so that you don't take too much time. So you're just conscious of the environment. So these are kind of guidelines that could be used anywhere. Quite beautiful. They use a talking stick, some of you might know this, as a way of whoever's the speaker is holding this kind of sacred object as a way, again, of helping us remember when we're speaking to really be here, to not be so on automatic pilot, and to remind the listeners to really listen. It's about presence. So write speech or wise speech, and then the Buddha, in the next of the Eightfold Path, described mindful action that our behaviors in this world as we move through life not cause harm. If we could just do that, this world would be a very happy, peaceful place. Ahimsa is the Sanskrit word, to not cause harm. If we could move through our day, and you can either think of it as not causing harm, or a real reverence for life, a care for life, If that could guide us through our day we'd be so awake, so free. So mindful action really honors and acknowledges that we're embodied and how we move through this life makes a difference. No matter how convinced a Buddhist is that the world is an illusion, she invariably leaves a room by walking through a doorway rather than through a wall. We're in these bodies. So the Buddha described what are called now precepts that really help to guide us in wise action. The precepts are to not kill or harm, as I've mentioned, which is really another way of saying to care for life. To not steal, which is another way of really saying to be sensitive of limited resources, to practice generosity, not grasping. That's the first and the second. The third of the precepts, and there are five of them, is to refrain from sexual misconduct. I mean, How many of us have acted foolishly? Don't don't raise your hands. (laughs) You know what I mean, though, right? (laughs) All of us. (laughs) Everybody. (laughs) So another way to say that one, and, and by the way, in the... Theravadin school of Buddhism, there's a lot of not this and don't that's and, and there's um, I, I think it's sometimes more inspiring to, to frame it the other way rather to be free to act in a way that frees us to express tenderness that allows us to create a container that really promotes intimacy with each other loving intimacy then the next is to refrain from misuse of intoxicants And again, it's to act and behave in this world that's going to protect and preserve and support our awareness so we don't act in a way they call heedlessly or carelessly. There's a ceremony that's basic to Buddhist practice of taking the precepts. And in the fall I'm going to actually be talking more of these because... They're not so much rules of conduct as the natural expression of waking up. That if we want to be awake, if we want to be free, it makes it hard if we go through a day of raping and plundering and pillaging, right? I mean, we don't have the same openness of spirit and heart at the end of that. So these arise naturally. They're guidelines that really create a supportive environment becoming more free. So in the fall, as I said, I'll be um, doing another talk on just this, and for those that are interested in, in as a way to support your own practice and taking the precepts, um, we can do that too. So there's mindful action, and then the third of the in-the-world uh, truths on the Eightfold Path has to do with livelihood called right or wise livelihood. That we can't compartmentalize. Do you know what I mean? That it can't be go to meditation class and sit and do meta-meditations and then go to work and just go numb, get mechanical, get through the day. That our freedom comes from including more and more moments and activities from the ones that seem in a sense most repetitive or unimportant to those that seem most profound, bringing a real quality of presence, of interest, of care, that our livelihood, regardless of what it is, can be one where we express compassion. And I just said, regardless of what it is, I think there's some that they can't do that, actually. If, if our livelihood is one that's directly taking advantage of people or hurting people, and there are some that do that. So there is some discrimination in what we choose to do. I think it's a, a valuable ongoing inquiry for most of us to look and see to what extent we've created compartments and how much we can bring work into the circle of what we consider a part of our expression of spirit how much we can sense the possibility through the day of expressing our heart of being wise and of living in the moment the next on the Eightfold Path is wise effort now effort is what energizes us through the path. We all have a natural amount of energy to expend and direct. It comes out of our intention to wake up. The challenge is how to make a wise effort without striving, without acting out of fear that we're not enough. The Buddha described wise effort as the effort to be present. In the most basic way, it's the effort to show up. At this moment, how fully can this heart be open and this mind be clear and bringing presence right here and now so the traditional example the Buddha gave on wise effort was in tuning the lute he says if the strings are, are too tight, you gotta relax and lighten up some and if they're too loose we recommit we recommit to being here not recommit to straining. Just as in a sitting in meditation, we'll sit and we'll find we've drifted and spaced out. There can be this moment of going, ah, okay, thinking, loss, planning, worrying, and then this sense of, ah, want to be here, recommitting, and bringing that interest and that care which really carries us. Uh, Ananda was one of the Buddha's closest disciples or followers, very devoted. And he was um, considered to be the only one out of the council of 500 monks who was not a full arhat. And an arhat is an enlightened being. Now, so you know, Ananda participated in everything and he was a really great devotee. He had an incredible memory for the teachings of the Buddha and was the disciple most known for having a wonderful heart. So you wonder, so why bother being an arhat? That's what I wonder sometimes. But in this story, it describes how there was still some level of, of understanding or awakening that he had not yet experienced. So the night before the council, because everybody was really kind of chiding him, he decided, okay, this is it, I'm going to go for it. And um, you know what happens when we try to go for it. He strained, and he, and he tried to penetrate through the veils of, that are blocking him from reality, and he sat, and he walked, and he did all the things you do. And then he remembered the Buddhist teachings. When there's excessive exertion, relax. Just relax so he decided to lie down and just do that and it said that in the moment that his head sunk into the pillow, his feet settled and he just let go he woke up fully and everybody the next day noticed it's part of the story so we tend to this garden we're all awakening and we tend to this awakening with that quality of relaxed but wakeful effort we care, so we try to cultivate this garden, but it's relaxed and it's trusting that it's happening the last of the two on the eightfold path are the training of awareness the conscious training of awareness the first, the training of mindfulness wakeful presence in most Asian scripts the word for heart and mind are the same so when we talk about mindfulness we're really talking about the wakefulness of heart and mind this capacity and training in being fully here open-hearted clear present this is Thich Nhat Hanh. mindfulness is the miracle which can call back in a flash our dispersed mind and restore it to wholeness so that we can live each minute of life. He says the miracle is not to walk on water but to walk on earth with mindfulness. The miracle is to bring this fullness of attention right here and now we always have some reason not to be fully here for this moment, like there's another moment that counts more. We're on our way somewhere, or we're just leaving the real moment and we're going home, or, "Do you know what I mean? We don't value the, it's not our habit to say, "This moment counts. This is it." And yet, when it begins to be our habit to really let this moment be precious, this life becomes an incredible adventure, because each moment has that possibility of freedom, of full presence, of mindfulness. There's a Tibetan thangka, a thangka is a a painting, that describes beautifully the teachings of mindfulness. Many of you probably know of this one, where the Buddha is sitting under the Bodhi tree and he's surrounded by the forces of Mara. Now, Mara are all the forces of um, greed, and pride, and attachment, and envy, and lust, and everything that that can pull us around, that can make us small, that can make us reactive. Every temptation you can imagine was coming at the Buddha in the shape of swords, in this particular one. So Mara, these forces are throwing swords at him. And what the Buddha does in this painting is hold up his hand which is connected to this golden cord of compassion to his heart and every sword that comes at him he touches with this infinite kindness and presence and they fall like flower blossoms and there's these huge piles of blossoms at his feet. And that's the power one learns to really sit and face what's here, to bring this fullness of heart, which really is who we are, and this very beautiful quality of wakeful presence, and touch whatever arises with that, to really be with our life. It's in that being with that our nature is revealed, that life is revealed, that we can see the truth of this changing flow of experience, and that we can rest in this radiant awareness which is our nature. One of the descriptions that I love the most um, by Thomas Merton. He went to Planarua, which is um, has these cliffs 100 feet tall with, with all these um, carvings of the Buddha in them. And he described how you walk barefoot across the grass to this, these huge and awesome cliffs. And this is what he said he saw said they were alive in some way you walk up to them says the silence of these extraordinary faces great smiles huge peaceful subtle filled with every possibility questioning nothing rejecting nothing the peace not of emotional resignation but of emptiness that has seen through every question allowed everything without trying to discredit any one idea or thing, without refutation, without establishing some other argument. The extraordinary thing about all this is that there is no puzzle, no problem. All of life is clear and complete. Everything appears in emptiness, and everything is compassion. mindfulness is not just a removed observing or watching we don't find our peace because we've set ourselves apart and just noticed what's happening this mindfulness and heartfulness that we practice is truly a living experience of what is happening experiencing from within, feeling fully touching fully A wakeful experience of the breath from within the breath, sensations, thoughts, confusion, grief, colors, excitement. This is about living fully, living fully and wakefully. The great mantra of mindfulness is this too, just to keep saying, this too. So nothing is outside our experience, nothing is rejected. And in the moment that we say this too, we become this boundless space, this boundless heart that has room for our life. We suffer so much from feeling we can't handle this life. Do you know what I mean? Like it's going to be too much? So one of the great beauties of this practice of learning to say this too is we find that we can soften and open in the face of anything. We have that power of heart and mind this too. This is Rumi. Both the rose and the thorn appear together in spring and the wine of the grape is not without its headaches. Do not be an impatient bystander on this path. By God, there is no death worse than expectancy. Waiting for something else rather than being here. Set your heart on hard cash, not counterfeit. And listen to my advice. Let go of your worries and ambitions, your fears, and be completely clear-hearted, like the face of a mirror when it is empty of all forms and can contain each form that arises. So, cultivating mindfulness, the last of the eightfold path, is the cultivation of concentration. Concentration, that, that steadiness of mind, the contacting, the full contacting of this moment. It's the candle in the windless place, really calming, really being able to be here enough so that mindfulness can arise. Steady, calm, present. When the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answer or any solution, neither resisting or avoiding, it is only then that there can be regeneration, that something new is born, because it is only then that the mind is capable of perceiving that which is true. And it is the truth that liberates, not our efforts to be free. Concentration, stabilizing the mind so we can really be here and see what's true, see what's real. Now, the challenge of concentration, of course, is that, as we find every time we intend to come into the present, is that our minds just take off again and again and again. It's said that the mind has no pride, it just roams. So it takes a certain amount of patience. Here's another description. Suzuki Roshi writes that wise effort in learning to concentrate, he says, control the cow by giving it a wide, wide pasture. You understand that when we learn to concentrate, if we get tense and tight and try to aim the mind, the mind will rebel and there will just be more tension. It creates a lot of tightness. So rather, concentration is an open, relaxed space of awareness, certainly intentional, certainly precise, but quite wide, quite allowing. We make room, we relax. The mantra for me in terms of concentration is, just this much, just this moment, just this breath, just these sounds. Do you understand to really come into a very intimate contact with what's happening right now just as much don't underestimate the power of even a few moments of steadying the mind of coming back that's all we can do you know is as we go away and just have the willingness to come back and just a few moments of coming back of being here really gives us the power to penetrate some to remember what matters to be home again some of you know this as you practice during the day if you just pause a bit just take even three, four breaths in a conscious way it's like this veil has been removed and there's just more of a feeling of realness and we long to be real we want to be real there's this relief oh yeah, back again Concentration is a muscle. We actually train ourselves to come back more and more frequently till we fart, start finding that we're more here than away. But it just takes this willingness to keep noticing when we've left and say, ah, come back again. These gardens naturally bloom. Just the way the seed naturally intends to and does become the blossom, the flower, we're naturally waking up. And as we do so, and as most of you are beginning to notice, we deepen and deepen in our aspiration to be there for it, to be there for this life, to show up. It's helpful with the Eightfold Path to select areas to particularly pay attention to. Because it's a lot, isn't it? It's everything. To select areas whether it's, okay, this week I'm really going to pay attention to how I move physically, how I stand up, how I walk, just training to be in this body, or another week to pause a little when you're speaking with other people so that there's more moments of connecting with your heart, or to listen more to our children, whatever it is, It's by kind of intending to pay attention that we find that the adventure really comes alive because there's so much waking up that happens when we bring this mindfulness into our day. Now, this is T.S. Eliot, quick here, now, always, a moment of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. This is no small thing, this awakening and this walking a path of freedom. It takes our entire heart and mind and being. It's a deep commitment to being who we are. And yet, it's a joyful one because that's what we love. We love discovering and living true to our being. So it's not grim. Um, And in honor of Not grim. I'd like to close tonight. (laughs) This is called Golden Retrievals. Fetch? Balls and sticks engage my attention seconds at a time. Catch? I don't think so. Bunny, tumbling leaf, a squirrel who's, oh joy, actually scared. Sniff the wind then I'm off again. Muck, pond, ditch, residue of any thrillingly dead thing. And you? Either you're sunk in the past, half our walk, thinking of what you can never bring back or else you're off in some fog concerning tomorrow is that what it's called my work to unsnare time's warp and woof retrieving my haze-headed friend you this shining bark a zen master's bronzy gong calls you here entirely now bow wow bow wow bow wow So let's take a few moments to come fully here now, to let yourself arrive by relaxing. We don't become free by tensing, but rather by simply opening into what is, sitting down in these bodies, softening, simply feeling what's here to be felt without judging, without pushing away the pleasant, the unpleasant. Sensing a willingness to touch fully this life. Feeling the movement of the breath. Letting that help to gather you, to steady the awareness. Letting the senses be open. sounds that come and go, the movement of sensations in the body, the moods, the thoughts, all appearing and disappearing in this open space of awareness, which is our nature. our moments of freedom be of benefit to all beings. May our words be kind, our actions healing. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings experience loving-kindness and peace. May all beings be free. Closing as we open tonight with that sound current of OM, the universal sound current, connecting with our own hearts, each other, with all beings. Please inhale deeply and then exhale. Inhaling together. Oh.